to the Daily Devotion. My name is Kevin. I'm the pastor of Christ Church Conway, a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America here in Conway, Arkansas. The Daily Devotion is a time for us to be strengthened in our faith through the study of Scripture and theology. It's Sermon Sunday, so today we will post the sermon that was preached this morning at Christ Church Conway. If you have a Bible, I invite you, with, invite you to turn with me now to Mark chapter 6. We're going to look this morning at Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. We'll dip down into the next section a little bit for one detail. So let's read Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 44 together. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And Jesus said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and Jesus had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus answered his disciples, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing, and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Most gracious Father, as we look once again at your word, we ask that you would add your blessing to this reading of your word. I ask that you would strengthen me now by your spirit, that I may speak his words that we, your people, might be strengthened in our faith as our eyes are set once again upon Christ our Savior. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Well, as we come to this story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, it's easy to forget that this is actually a little bit of a difficult story to understand. If we look over at Mark chapter 8, verses 14 through 21, we see that, that even the disciples didn't quite get it. Even after it happening twice, with the 5,000 and later with the 4,000, they still didn't get exactly what was going on. And, and we read it, and, and there's a number of different ways that this story is approached. There's just kind of the like basic reading where we, we see the miracle, we see Jesus doing this incredible thing, and we go, oh yeah, Jesus is able to provide whatever we need, and he's compassionate and cares for us. And that's certainly true. That, that's certainly part of what we're taught here. 
But then some people point out, well, yeah, but when we get to verse 41, there's all of this, this Eucharistic, this Lord's Supper language. In fact, these four verbs that are used here of him taking the loaves and, and, and breaking them and blessing them and giving them, those four words, those four verbs are, are used together only really in this story when it's told in Mark and in Luke and then in Mark's account of the institution of the Lord's Supper where we find this exact same language. And so people say, yeah, this is this reminder, this looking forward, this foreshadowing of the Lord's Supper and what was going to happen. And that's true also. And those two interpretations of this passage actually aren't at odds with each other. But then other people notice, well, wait a minute. Why exactly were these people here? And why were they able to set themselves down in ranks like that so quickly? Oh, wait, John tells us that these were people that were showing up to try to force Jesus to be king. And people begin to notice some details about this passage that make us think, for good reason, this wasn't just a regular crowd. This was a group of people planning to take the kingdom back. And they wanted Jesus to lead them. But he doesn't. And so people see this kind of uh, insurrectionist kind of idea in this story. And that's part of it too. But that's also not at odds with anything that has already been said. And and then other people look at it and go, oh my word, it's just this beautiful, biblical, theological retelling of the manna in the wilderness and the story that we just read of Elisha when he said there's going to be extra food. And then look here, there's extra food too. And that's true also. And what we begin to see is, is what we talk about so often here at Christ Church is lo and behold, the Bible really is telling one story beginning to end. And that story gets told and that story gets kind of displayed in all different ways. And here it's being displayed through this miraculous feeding of these 5,000 people with this meager meal that the disciples were able to gather up of five loaves of bread and two fish. So as we come to this story... There's some things that we need to notice as we begin to work through this to kind of understand exactly what's going on. The disciples have come back. They were sent out to go do ministry and they've come back and they're tired. And Jesus recognizes that they're worn out. He recognizes that they're tired. And so he says, hey, let's go on vacation together. Let's go over here to a desolate place and rest. I mean, essentially, and I'm not trying to be irreverent here, but Jesus said, look, let's let's go camp, get away from everything, and take a break. Because it tells us that, that they weren't even able to stop and feed themselves because the ministry was so constant. And so we see Jesus inviting his disciples, those whom he had sent out, into into him to rest. And and that alone could be a sermon all in itself. 
But then as soon as they go, something happens. It's the conclusion to so many ministry vacations. And I'm not complaining. It's just the way it is. People show up that need something. GA isn't really a vacation, but just as one illustration, the second time I ever went to GA, I didn't even take a coat and tie because I didn't know what I was doing. And I was on this committee and nobody was volunteering and it annoyed me. So I raised my hand and I became the secretary of this committee for the General Assembly. And then the next thing I know, the chairman of the committee, somebody in his church back home had passed away and he had to leave to do a funeral, which meant I now got to give a report to the entire General Assembly. And Microphone 9, after every sentence, stood up and asked for a point of order because I had done something wrong. That's just the reality. When we go away, it doesn't end our need. Because the reality is, while it is good to go away and rest and do those things, those don't actually meet the, the, the deepest needs that we have. It's a good rest. But the need continues. And so... Jesus sees this crowd when they get to where they're going. And this was a crowd that kind of had triangulated and figured out, wait, we think they're going there. And Mark tells us they ran ahead and met him there. Verse 34 says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And that, that, that phrase, they were like sheep without a shepherd, is, is one of the first clues. It's not the first clue, but it's one of the first clues that there might be something else going on with this crowd. This might not just be your, your ordinary crowd that's coming to see the healer. And in fact, when we look at how that phrase is used, sheep without a shepherd, we see it in a number of places. And frequently, it has a militaristic context. So when, when Moses in Numbers 27, 17 is told to appoint Joshua as his replacement so that the people won't be like a sheep without a shepherd, it's so that Joshua will go out before them and come in before them. In other words, so that he will lead them in their battles. Another place we see it is in 1 Kings twenty two seventeen. Here the context is Ahab seeking counsel about going to war with Judah against Syria. And Micaiah the prophet, he's the one that, that shows up and prophesies and, and you know, Ahab's like, is that really what God told you to say? He's like, no, this. And he's like, tell me what he really said, that whole situation. And he says the vision that he sees is that Israel is like sheep without a shepherd. In other words, Ahab, their leader, their king, the one who's going to lead them in victory, has been killed. And there's no one left to lead them. The other key piece of Old Testament context that we see at work here is, of course, Ezekiel 34, where we're told that the shepherds of Israel have shepherded poorly because they've shepherded for their own gain. And that God would shepherd them. That he wouldn't leave them as sheep without a shepherd, but that he would show up and shepherd them. So here, Jesus shows up, and here is this crowd of people that he sees 
and uses this language with all of this kind of Old Testament background. They're sheep without a shepherd. They, they, they need a leader. And in fact, we see in John chapter 6 when this story is told that they're looking for a leader. And they're looking for Jesus to be that leader. And that's what at the end of the story in John 6 prompts him leaving. Because they're about to force him to be their king. And so he runs. Because that's not what he's there for. But first, he has compassion on these people. They're they're looking for this leader. They're looking for someone to lead them in this way. And even though that's not what Jesus came to do, he has compassion on them. Because he recognizes that they are, in fact, the lost sheep of Israel. They are, in fact, the ones that he came for. His people that he would die for. But they're looking to him for the wrong thing. Some other clues that we see that this is is what's going on is the time. It says that there's green grass, which that really only happens in in the springtime in Israel because of the climate. And in John and and other accounts, we see that this is right before the Passover when all of the kind of messianic expectations would really be getting whipped up into shape. But maybe this is the Passover that the Messiah shows up and delivers us. There's the green grass, it's springtime, the Passover is at hand, and they're hopeful. But then also when we we look at the, the historical context and we look at kind of where this is all taking place, we see that it's in an area that James Edwards, a great commentator on the book of Mark, says was the spearhead of the freedom movement against Rome and particularly the spearhead of the zealot movement, the area of of Israel that they're in. We read about in Acts chapter 5, which was this area that kind of produced this line of people that they thought was the Messiah. And that they would get excited about and follow him. Maybe he's the one that's going to lead us to freedom. And here they are in this area again, and Jesus is there. And they're getting excited. Maybe he's the one. Maybe he's the one that's going to come and deliver our kingdom back to us. Maybe he's finally the one that's going to put an end to Rome. See, they were, as we know through the Gospels, looking for this political figure that would deliver them from Rome. And Jesus regularly rejects that role because it wasn't why he came. Even at the end of the story, when they're there, Peter pulls down his sword and there goes Malchus's ear and Jesus is like, no, 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 no. That's not how my kingdom comes. That's not what I came for. That's not how this works. See, in in the first century, and, and even today, 
There, there were those that wanted Jesus to deliver an earthly kingdom to his people. But he didn't come from that. He came to deliver his people into the kingdom of God. That's what he came for. That's why he came. It was not to give us some earthly kingdom, but to bring us into the kingdom of heaven. To bring us into his kingdom. We don't need Jesus so that he can provide us something else that we need for this life that comes from this life. That's not what he came for. He came to give us real, true life, eternal life, life with him, life in him. But he was going to do it in what to you and I seems to be the most backwards way possible. He was going to die. So so that brings us to the actual miracle. And it does look back to the manna in the wilderness where God provided food for his people. It does look back to the story that we read in 2 Kings 4 of Elisha dividing the bread up and saying, just like God said, there's going to be extra. And so he divides it all up and then there is extra. Jesus is here pictured as the one who has control over everything the one who can provide for his people, even miraculously, if necessary, the one who will have compassion on his people in their need. But who will give us what we need rather than just what we want from him. And sometimes that's a very big difference. And so he sits this group that it seems is there not just simply to be ministered to by Jesus, but to get something from him. He sits them down and they organize themselves in these kind of military-like ranks. That didn't happen with the 4,000, by the way, but here they're in their groups. And he takes this bread And he takes the two fish, he looks up to heaven, blesses it, breaks it, and gives it to the people. And they all eat and are satisfied. He provides for them what they needed, even though it wasn't what they came for. And in doing this, he shows himself to be the God who delivered his people out of Egypt through the wilderness and provided manna for them. He shows himself to be the God who ministered to and through the prophets like Elisha in the Old Testament. He shows himself to be the same God who would do the same thing for his people, that he would be the one who would deliver them into all the promises of God and would provide everything that we need along the way. 
But as we go on in the story, and we see these same words repeated in Mark 14.22 at the institution of the Lord's Supper, where he adds that this is my body. He's giving us a foreshadowing of how exactly he's going to do this. And it's not going to be through some grand political coup. It's going to be through him laying his life down. It's going to be through him letting go of this world to take hold of his people. And in fact, when we read the story in John's gospel, he makes all of these connections all the more clear. Because immediately after this story in John's gospel, John records the I am the bread of life statement. Where he reminds us what, what, what just happened. What was I was foreshadowing what I came here to do. I came here to give myself to you that you might have life. I came here to provide for you the real version of what it is that you're looking for. The real kingdom that you're longing for. That's what I came to give you. And it's so much better than the earthly kingdoms we want. And that we spend so much time fighting for. Christ came to deliver us to something better. And he would do it by laying down his life and taking it up again. He would do it by giving himself to the people only for there to be more life left. Perhaps it's too far but perhaps this is what the 12 baskets are really a picture of. That even when he had been given over, there was more left. Life couldn't be taken from him. He, he would rise in victory. There would be yet more. And there would be enough. The riches of his grace, the riches of the life, the riches of his provision for his people would overflow in abundance as he rose on Easter in victory over sin and death. See, this is what this story is about. It's about Christ giving himself to us. That we might have life. It's about him doing these things that we see him do throughout his ministry that foreshadow his death and resurrection that we might have life. It's about seeing that our king is a king who comes to us in our weakness and in our confusion and in our longing for stuff from this world and gives us something better because he's compassionate and he's merciful and he's full of grace and he knows what we need before we ever even ask for it. And he knows what we need 
when we don't even know what we're supposed to be asking for. And so this forces us to ask some questions. It it forces us to to ask, what, what is it that we're going to Christ for? What is it that we're looking to Him for? Are we looking to Him for the life that He has promised? Are we looking to Him for what He said He came to give? Or like the crowds seem to be in this story. Are we looking to Him to provide this world for us? And to provide this world in the form that we want it? See, this isn't a new danger for the church. This is a danger that has existed for centuries and millennia. We want God to give us this earthly kingdom the way we want it. We want Saul to be our king. We don't want David. We don't want the the little guy. Even though he's the one that can secure the covenant. That can secure the promises of God. We want Saul. And when we do that, when we long for that, we oftentimes miss Christ because we look right past him. The crowds, when he came into Jerusalem, laid down the palm branches and chanted, Hell, King of the Jews, Hosanna! Hosanna in the highest! But then they crucified this guy who showed up on a donkey. This proverbial animal of peace instead of on a war horse. See, that's what happens when we go to Jesus looking, seeking something from Him that He didn't come to give. We miss Him. We miss Him. But here's here's the good news. He knows we'll miss Him. He knows that we'll come to him wanting him to deliver this world to us and miss him. So what does he do to us? He has compassion on us. He sees that we're like sheep without a shepherd. He sees that we don't know what it is that we need, that we don't know how it is that we're going to get it. That maybe, maybe he's the one that will deliver this kingdom to us. And he comes to us in tenderness and with compassion and says, I see you, but I came for something better. Here's some food. Go home. See, this whole story, 
really, at the end of the day, is about learning to look to Jesus for what he actually came to provide in order that we might find rest in him. He starts by inviting his disciples into that rest. And then at the end of the story, after he feeds these 5,000 men, he sends his disciples away and tells the crowd to go home. He knows why they came. He knows what they want. He knows they're confused and frustrated and scared because they feel like they're losing everything that is precious to them. And he's compassionate. He feeds them. Make sure they know that he sees them. And then sends them back home. Because he's going to do something to provide for them the real version of what they're longing for in shadow form. He's going to give his life and he's going to take it up again. That they might come to him and join in his kingdom forever. That's what this, this story is about. That's what this miracle is about. Might we learn to look to Christ for the things that he came to give and not for the things that we hope he'll deliver to us that are grounded in this world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope of the gospel. We thank you that, that even when we come in our frustration, when we come in our fear, when we come with all of our earthly longings, that Christ is compassionate, that he feeds us, that he provides the bread of life, which is himself, and gives us rest. Father, would you teach us to look to him who can provide what we need that we might receive in faith all that we need and not the weak imitations that we want. We ask this in Christ's most precious name. Amen.